Now take your Bible and open to um, uh, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. We're working our way through this uh, wonderful text. We're getting closer to the end. It was honestly my surprise when I kind of looked back to see how long, just how long have we been in Romans 8. And we've been in here for a long time now. And you're going, yeah, I know, I know. But it's a tremendous portion of Scripture. I just love Romans chapter 8. And I just, uh, the section we're looking at now really speaks to the issue of the security of our salvation. Uh, the fact that our salvation is irrevocable. It's often known as the doctrine of eternal security. Sometimes it's called the perseverance of the saints. Uh, sometimes even cryptically people refer to it as once saved, always saved. So the text basically answers the question, can I lose my salvation? Now again, some people say, well, we, we just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Some people, other people say, well, it's once you're saved, it is possible for you to lose your salvation. But, but the Bible says that's really an utter impossibility. And the truth is that a true Christian can never lose their salvation. And it's not really based on any effort on the part of the believer, but rally, rather it's based on the work of Christ himself. It's based on the work of God himself. And we've seen that, and we're going to continue to see that as we work our way through the remainder of the chapter. Uh, and when we come to Romans chapter 8, it's really the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the person and the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit a lot in the mornings. <clears throat> so we've been going through, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, going through John chapter 14. But really in uh, Romans 8, this is really the ministry of the Spirit also. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's the life of Christ Jesus, who sets us free from the law of sin and death. It's the Spirit who directs our life. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who sets our minds on the things of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who directs us towards life and peace. It's the, the Spirit who confirms our adoption as sons. It's the Spirit who takes up residence within us. And it's the Spirit who gives assurance to our spirits that we're indeed God's children. It's the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who's going to give life to our mortal bodies, just as he has promised, as he's raised Christ from the dead, he'll raise us from the dead. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and transforms us and from the inside out and changes our, our life and time so that we're no longer living under the obligation of the flesh, but according to the Spirit, therefore, we are putting to death the deeds of the body. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who uh, convicted us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, as it says in John 16. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, John 3. It's the Holy Spirit who participates in our justification, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's the Holy Spirit who even sanctifies us and helps us move from one level to the next level, conforming us to the uh, image of Christ, one level of holiness, one level of glory to the next, again, conforming us to the image of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3, Romans chapter 8. I mean, we could go on and on. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The capstone, the, 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 the top, if you will, of all of it, is he's the one who secures our eternal glory. He's the one who secures our eternal glory. He's the one who secures our eternal salvation. And that's really the theme of the verses in front of us. Uh, the fact that salvation is forever. The fact that we're protected by the power of God until the final day of glorification. Uh, for an inheritance that is laid up for us. An inheritance that is imperishable uh, and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved for you in heaven, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, chapter 4. Or verse 4. Again, it's the Holy Spirit who secures our eternal glory. And it's his indwelling within us that is the first installment, if you will, of the down payment, the engagement ring of the promise of a future day of uh, eternal salvation. He's the protector of every believer until he raises us from, de the, from death to eternal glory. Again, just as he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So again, since it's really all the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the term perseverance of the saints is not bad. Perhaps a better term ought to be the perseverance of God, because that's a more accurate picture. Uh, it's the perseverance of God, or even even more clearly, it would be the preservation of God. The preservation of God. Uh, when it comes to the issue of our eternal salvation, the fact that our salvation can't be lost, because we're really looking at the activity of God, not the activity of men. So we are preserved, and we persevere because of God's work of salvation through the person of the Holy Spirit who makes sure that we are kept and guarded and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. So let's read the text. We're in Romans 8, verse 31. We're not going to quite make through all of it uh, this time, but Lord willing, next time we'll finish it up. Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also 
with him freely give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or naked or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep being led to slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now again, I've entitled the series Five Unanswerable Questions. Five questions the Apostle Paul puts forward here uh, at the end of uh, Romans chapter 8. And each of the questions I've told you are really rhetorical questions. They're really designed, uh, the answer is so obvious they don't really need an answer, but the questions are designed to encourage us uh, that our eternal destinies are safe and secure in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, remember, Paul's a pastor, and he knows people's tendencies, he knows our tendencies, uh, our hearts to doubt, he knows the devil's desire to discourage us, to depress us, to try to rob us of our joy and our confidence in Christ, and Paul doesn't want that for his people. So Paul is leaving no um, stone unturned, as it were. Uh, he, he's taking great pains to make sure that every conceivable argument against our eternal security in Christ has been addressed and answered. Now, you remember the questions come in two categories, either persons or circumstances, a real or imagined. Persons or circumstances that could possibly defeat God's plan and purpose for us in Christ. And Persons are in verses 1 or 31 through 34, and then the circumstances are in 35 through 39. Now, so far we've looked at the, the first three questions in some detail, asking can any person ever overturn God's eternal plan for us in Christ? Now, the first question was, again, it's a rhetorical. The answer is no. The answer is obvious, because the first question in verse 30, 31 is, if God's for us, who's against us? I mean, who's greater than God? If God's on your side, who could stand against you? In verse 32, the second question, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he also not with him freely give us all things? And then verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The third question. Now last time, again, we've worked through those other ones before. We've actually worked through these first three. Last time we spent a great deal of time looking at the third question. And remember the phraseology, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And that's Paul's terminology for saved individuals, eternally saved individuals. God's elect, God's chosen ones, those whom God has set his eternal electing love upon. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And then he says, God is the one who justifies. Again, proving the fact that the supreme judge of the universe has declared the elect, believing sinner, justified, or declared righteous in God's sight. Again, at the top of the chapter, there is now therefore what? No condemnation. Right? There's no condemnation of the law. There's no legitimate legal uh, charge that can ever be laid against us uh, by anyone uh, by, uh, against us who are in Christ. No, no one can lay that charge. <clears throat> not the devil, not even our own conscience. No one. And God the Father, again, certainly not going to be the one who's going to uh, bring a charge against us because he's not going to be the one who justifies us at the same time condemns us. Again, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's no condemnation for those whom God has justified by the imputed righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ given to the believer as a gift of God's grace and mercy through Christ. So now what Paul's going to do in this fourth question that we're going to start to look at uh, tonight is uh, he's going to turn his attention to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 34, fourth question, who's the one who condemns Christ? Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Is it possible, the question is asked somewhere out there, is it possible that Christ himself, the one who's brought us to salvation, is it possible that perhaps he could send us out of salvation? Is it possible that he could bring some kind of charge against us? And as I said last time, that very thought is entirely ludicrous. Just like the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ can't be once and at the same time both interceding for us and then at the same time condemning us. 
So what Paul is going to do is, again, he's going to prove the love of God for us in the eternal security of our salvation by turning our attention to the mediatorial work of Christ. And what he's going to do here is he's going to lay down four more reasons uh, why those who've been justified can never lose their salvation and they are forever free from condemnation. So again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Uh, Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Four more reasons. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he one who died. Yes, rather two who was raised. Three who's at the right hand of God. Then four who also intercedes for us. So these are the things, the four things that Paul tells us in verse 34 that Christ did for us because of his relationship to us. And I don't think the issue here or the stress is so much upon what Christ did or what happened to Christ, as important as that is. I really think the stress of each of these points that Paul brings up is that Christ did this for us, for us. That's the important point. That's the stress point. Because these are the things that Christ came to do when he came to the earth. These are the things that Christ came to do for his people, those whom he redeemed, those whom he bought back to himself through his shed blood. So what did he do for us? First point, Christ died. Right? He died. He died as a substitute, our substitute. He bore our sin in his body uh, on Calvary's cross. And in doing so, he atoned for sin. He made propitiation, or he turned aside God's wrath uh, against our sin that we deserved. So why did Christ have to die? The answer is because there's no other way to pay for sin. Right? There's no other way to deal with the issue of sin. So serious is the issue of sin that nothing but divine death could ever atone for it. There was and there is no other way for our own sin to be dealt with except through the body of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died. Christ willingly bore our guilt, our shame, our sin upon uh, himself and his body upon the cross. He died in our place. And therefore, in Christ, God punished our sin. And because God has punished our sin in Christ, therefore, we have been declared by God justified. Again, no longer under condemnation. God's justice has been fully satisfied in the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing that Christ did, he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead proves our justification. It proves our justification. Romans 4, verse 25. He who was delivered up because of our transgression transgression was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead proves our justification. That's why Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5, the top of the chapter, says, Having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is vital. It's essential for the assurance of our salvation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Those who deny the literal, physical, historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ are without hope, without assurance, without the gospel, therefore without salvation. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ proves that those who truly believe upon Christ can never come under condemnation. Remember when we started this little series here toward the end, I tell you there's all kinds of people out there, all kinds of voices on the internet and elsewhere that are saying, well, you can lose your salvation, and that's just completely ridiculous. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves our justification. He was delivered up because of our transgression and raised because of our justification. His historical resurrection is vital. In fact... Or, or the, the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ declares the fact that if we were ever to be punished judicially again for our sins, our punishment would be unjust. Does that sound like a strong statement? If we were to ever to be if we were ever to be punished judicially again for our sins, our our punishment would be unjust. 
Meaning, if we were ever to be held again legally liable, uh, I mean, God also obviously brings discipline into our life, but if we're, as a good father, but if we were ever held legally liable again for our sin, that would make, and I'm speaking with most reverence, but that would make God unjust. Because that can't happen. And God's not unjust. Now put a mark there in, in your Bible and then turn over with me. It's a familiar passage towards the end of the Bible in First uh, John chapter 1. First John chapter 1 verse 8. First John chapter 1 verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now we got it, right? We understand we're sinners. Sinners by birth, sinners by practice, sinners by divine declaration. Our actual condition before God is one of being a sinner. If we say that we're not sinners, we say at some point we've actually reached perfection in this world, and on such and such a date, we stop sinning. I've actually known people who say that. Then John says, the truth is not in us. We're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But, verse 9, if we confess our sin, if we agree with God to the facts that we are indeed sinners, then he is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how is it that God can be faithful and just or righteous to forgive our sins? Because he's made that way possible through the substitutionary death of Christ. Christ bore our punishment, therefore justice has been served in the case of the believing sinner, and justice has already been meted out through Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We are removed from the realm of condemnation because Christ has paid our sins in his own person. And God has reckoned or imputed to Christ our sins. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how it happens. Christ, God the Father, pours out our sin, credits the Christ account our sin, and we are credited the righteousness of Christ, or, or, or reckoned Christ's perfect righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed to the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The Old Testament says something very much along the same lines. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, he says, the, uh, Isaiah says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself with garland, and the bride adorns herself with jewels. If we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, or if we who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, Again, understanding the doctrine of assurance, understanding the doctrine of eternal security. It's vital if we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if we were ever to be judicially punished for our sin, that would make God unjust, and he is absolutely not unjust. That's why it's so dangerous to listen to people on the Internet that don't know what they're talking about, who like to promote themselves as being wise. That's why... The book of James says, let many of you be teachers because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. You're really speaking against the character of God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, when we fall into sin and think of the justice of God, we tend to argue that God would be justified in punishing us, that we deserve nothing else. But we are mistaken, he says. The argument should now be that justice and righteousness and truthfulness of God now insist upon and demand that we be pardoned completely. He says this is because of what God has done in Christ. It would be unjust to punish the same sin twice, and God can never be unjust. He is faithful and just. So here we have absolute proof not only of the one cannot be condemned, but it is because of the death and the resurrection of the Son of God that such condemnation is an impossibility. For us to be condemned would mean that the sin of which we are guilty and which has already been punished in Christ in our stead should once more be punished to us, and that would be unjust. 
All that justice demands is the punishment of sin, and our sin has been already punished and is already satisfied. Christ's resurrection and our justification, therefore, declares that. Isn't that good? Right? We have been raised. We have been delivered up because of our, or he was delivered up because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. The God, the, the, the judge of the universe has already made the proclamation. He's punished our sin in Christ. And what's interesting is the justice that something we once feared apart from Christ now becomes to us the very greatest hope of the guarantee of our eternal salvation. Do you understand that? The justice that we once feared when we were apart from Christ now becomes the very hope and the greatest guarantee of our eternal security in Christ because now there is now therefore what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus stood in our place. We've got to stop being so subjective. The world's not about us. Salvation's not about us. We're the beneficiaries of salvation, but there's a greater story than just you being saved or me being saved. It's really the unfolding eternal plan of God and, and exalting his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and exalting his mercy and kindness towards sinful men. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ stepping into time and being that sin bearer and God punishing Christ so he wouldn't have to punish us. So again, Paul's argument here about our eternal security based on uh, the death and the resurrection of Christ could not be any stronger proof that at the moment you truly believe God's character, God's nature guarantees your eternal destiny. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous or just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not because of us, but all because of him and all because of his son. Isn't that good? The justice of God, something that we once rightly feared apart from Christ, is now the very hope and the greatest guarantee of our eternal security in Christ. Now go back to Romans 8. Again, like John keeps piling on, or Christ keeps piling on blessings as we're studying in the morning, John, uh, Paul here in the evening just keeps piling on more truth. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he, again, one who died. Yes, rather, two, who was raised. Third, very interesting, who's at the right hand of God. Who's at the right hand of God? So the third issue that Paul brings up here is the fact that Christ right now is enthroned in a place of exaltation, at the Father's right hand. So how does this help? How does this help uh, continue the argument concerning our eternal security? Well, just look there real carefully and look at the look at the uh, tense changes in the verbs. Tense changes in the verbs. Christ Jesus is he who died, past tense. Yes, rather, he who was raised, past tense. Who is, present tense, at the right hand of God. That's where Christ is presently, at the right hand of God. Again, it's symbolic language taken from uh, the custom of earthly monarchs to express special favor, to denote dignity and power, to sit at the right hand of the sovereign. And that's the position of our Lord. And that's really the answer to Christ's prayer that he's going to offer in the morning in our studies in the book of John, John chapter 17. John 17, verse 4, I glorified thee on earth. I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do, and now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, in the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Christ laid aside his glory when he came to earth, become a man, to be the sin bearer, to accomplish the work of redemption. In anticipation of the cross, the complete work or the completion of the work of his atonement, Christ prays to the Father, again, John chapter 17, Restore to me the glory, right? Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was in eternity. Now, according to the scripture, that's already happened. That's occurred. Think about Acts chapter 7, Stephen. Just before his martyrdom, he, say, he sees the exalted Christ standing at the right hand of God. Acts chapter 7, verse 56. When Saul of Tarsus, who is a blasphemer and a murderer, 
meets the risen Christ. He meets the risen glorified Christ on his road, on the road to Damascus, again, where he is going to persecute Christians, and then he is gloriously converted, and he becomes the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9. He sees, he meets face-to-face the glorified Christ. Apostle John, he has a similar kind of an experience. He has a vision of Christ risen, exalted in the book of the Revelation. Uh, again, the, uh, the apostle whom God loved, the disciple who, uh, who uh, uh, Christ loved the most. And so magnif- uh, magnificently impressive was the vision uh, of Christ. John says, Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. So that's Christ presently. He's in this position of power, this position of honor, this position of exaltation. Again, how does that fact how does that fact continue the argument forward on our eternal security? Well, just knowing and believing that fact alone should be an encouragement to us with regard to our eternal security, because the reason the reason that Christ is at that place or in that place of honor is because He has secured our salvation by His death and resurrection. That's why He's in that position of honor. And therefore, he's now presently being honored for that work. I always think it's interesting when I'm studying the Bible and I can just pour in deep and deep and deep. And you come across verses, you go, yeah, yeah, I've read that, read that. But then you kind of read it in a different light in the context of how you're studying. Where's Christ? The right hand of the Father, the position of honor. He's already been exalted, already been glorified. Honored for his work. Listen. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those here in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. That's the position he sits now because he has secured our salvation. But there's more. It's not just the fact that he's there at the right hand in a position of honor and power. The Bible says, again, not only is he in that position next to the the sovereign, next to the father, but listen, he's presently seated. He's presently seated at the father's right hand. Psalm 110, verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10.12, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now again, that little phrase there, Jesus, who's at the right hand of God, speaks primarily of Christ's intercessory work as our great high priest. What he did between the resurrection and being seated, again, at the right hand of God in glory. The fact that Christ is seated implies that his work as the high priest is what? Finished. Because if a person still has work to do, they're standing. In the book of Hebrews, uh, that theme is worked out where there's a comparison made between uh, Israel's earthly priests and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And the Old Testament priest had many functions, but his chief function was to really enter into the most holy chamber in the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies. And he did there once time, uh, he went into the Holy of Holies one time a year, (coughs) excuse me, to perform an act that only he could do or that he was only, only he was allowed to do. Again, we're going to come back, but turn over to the book of Hebrews. Let's just look at a couple of portions of Scripture there. Hebrews chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of uh, background. Hebrews 9, 6 is where we're going to jump in. But obviously the book of Hebrews is grounded in the work of the Levitical priesthood. So understanding the book of Leviticus is helpful and understanding on what's going on here. God's people, Israel, committed many acts of sin, and the sin continued to disrupt their fellowship with God. Therefore, God graciously establishes a system of sacrifice that symbolically represented their inner repentance. 
symbolically represented God's divine forgiveness. But the need for sacrifice never ended because the people, uh, uh, because of the people and the priests, they never stopped what? Sinning. They just sinned all the time. So the need for mankind was to have a perfect high priest and a perfect sacrifice. One that could come and once for all eternity actually remove sin. And the central point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is indeed God's perfect high priest. And Jesus Christ is actually God's perfect sacrifice. He's the one, the only one who can come and remove sin forever. And I think one of the, the one of the key theological points about the book of Hebrews is understanding that under the Old Testament system, under the Levitical priesthood, true believers did not have direct access to God. Uh, they were shut out of the Holy of Holies. But in Christ, we have direct access to God. And we're called to boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in our time of need because of Christ's work on our behalf. So let's look at a few of these verses. Hebrews 9.6 Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing divine worship. So everyday priests would enter the tabernacle. Two main rooms, an outer room or the holy place, and the inner room, again called the Holy of Holies. Every day in the outer tabernacle, the priests would trim uh, the wicks on the candles. They'd put oil in the lamps. They'd put incense in the altar of uh, incense. Every Sabbath, they would change the 12 loaves of bread. They were continually working. They were continually in and out of the tabernacle, ministering on behalf of the people. And in this manner, they were a picture of Christ, uh, who does not cease working on our behalf, and I'll talk about that more just in a moment, uh, because Christ never stops enlightening his people, he never stops feeding his people, he never stops interceding on his people's behalf. Verse 7 says, But into this second room, which is the Holy of Holies, into this second room, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So it's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's a once a day or once a year. The high priest entered into the Holy of Holies to perform this function. Again, and in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenants. And on top of the Ark was two cherubim, two golden statues of angels, and whose job were to protect and declare the holiness and glory of God. And between the two angels was a little spot there was called the mercy seat of the propitiatory. And that's where the blood was offered inside the Holy of Holies. So every time an Israelite sinned, his fellowship with God was broken. So daily sacrifices were never finished. The priest's work was never done. However, in spite of all the sacrifices for sin, perhaps there was one that was forgotten and no sacrifice was made for that. So again, the Day of Atonement was made. Sacrifice for all the sins already not covered by the shed blood. And when you talk about the shedding of blood, you're referring to Death, right? The wages of sin is death. For sin to be atoned for, death has to occur, right? A life has to be given. Wages of sin is death. So here the high priest enters the Holy of Holies. Look what it says. Not without taking blood which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So every earthly high priest was a sinner. Therefore, he had to offer first for himself a sacrifice for his own sin before he could ever offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. And again, I've already stated that the Levitical priesthood did not provide for people direct access to God. Rather, really, the whole system kept people away from God. Nearness to God would have to be provided by another way. And that's what the Holy Spirit is teaching in verse 8. God was inaccessible God is inaccessible apart from the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way to the holy place has not yet been disclosed. I have no idea why people who think it's wise to run back into the Old Testament system. There's nothing profitable in that system. I mean, except for the declaration of God's holiness and the fact that you're a sinner and you're under judgment because the way has not yet been disclosed in that system. He says, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time, according to both gifts and sacrifices that are offered that cannot make the worshiper perfect, 
in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So again, in the Old Covenant system of worship, it did not meet the deepest need that people have, namely an intimate, personal relationship with God. All the, all the ceremonies, all the rites, all the, uh, uh, the pictures, they just extended to external matters until God would provide a better system at the time of Reformation, he says. And again there in verse 9, he says the tabernacle is a symbol. Uh, the Greek word is parabole. We would get our English word parable. So what he's saying is, look, this whole Old Testament sacrificial system is nothing more than an object lesson about what was to come in Christ. Again, verse 9, according to both the gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The Old Testament system could not deal with removing the sinner's guilty conscience or really provide forgiveness of sin. It was symbolic, and it was really symbolic of something greater to come. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things to come, Christ was and is the perfect high priest, and the good things to come or the good things that have come, I think that's an acceptable translation, that means the good things that have come is salvation. When Christ appeared as our perfect high priest, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That really is the emphasis. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So again, the earthly high priest once a year, took upon himself figuratively uh, the sins of the people. He acted as their representative, but he had to go first into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice and offering for his own sin. So the blood of the slain bull was collected, and the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies to the place of the mercy seat to offer that sacrifice for sin to God. The other priests waited outside to know whether or not God accepted that sacrifice. They listened to the little bells that were sewn into the hem of the high priest's robe so they could hear him moving around in there. If they heard the bells and they heard the the, the high priest walking back towards the place to exit, they knew that God accepted the sacrifice and that their sins were covered and that God would continue to bless the people. However, if those little bells, again sewn into the the hem of the priest's robes, if they went silent, when the earthly priest entered the Holy of Holies, he entered in there ceremonially unclean. The bells stopped making noise. The priest would know that. And they'd drag his dead body out by a rope that they tied, tied to his leg. Because God's holy. But again, look what Christ, our perfect high priest, did. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, talking about his body. Not made with hands, not as, that is to say, not this creation, but through the blood of, and not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood. He entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So Christ, our great high priest, offered his own blood once for all and obtained eternal redemption for us. Christ, for by his own blood, offered a once-for-all sacrifice. His shed blood upon Calvary's cross, and because of his shed blood on Calvary's cross, his work is over, his work is finished. Turn over to chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily, ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sin, verse 12, but he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, before the offering, before by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or being made holy. Is, it's a present passive, so being made holy, I think it says in the NIV. Those who are sanctified, those who are holy, those who have been set apart by God for God. Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down 
at the right hand of God. And again, the fact that Christ sat down, that means his work is over. That means redemption, salvation is complete. It means atonement has been made. Because again, sitting down is a sign of finality. Sitting down is a, is a sign that means nothing else more needs to be done. Nothing else more can be done concerning our sin than what Christ has done, because Christ has done everything. Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are again holy, set apart for God. All right, that's the picture. Now go back to Romans 8. Again, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31, what shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who justifies? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who, one, who died, yes, rather two, was raised, and three, is at the right hand of God. And it's not just that he died, not just that he's raised, but he's presently where at the right hand of God? What's he doing at the right hand of God? He is seated. He is seated in that place of honor because he has eternally secured our salvation by his shed blood upon Calvary's cross. And now at the right hand of God, he is presently being honored for that work. He's sitting at his father's right hand with all power and authority because of his dying in our place. And he has finished the work of redemption concerning us who believe his work is completely finished. Therefore, Acts chapter 5, verse 31 says, He is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Isn't that good? He's seated. And the scripture says unbelievably that one day we're going to be there with him also. Seated in glory. Go, where do you get that from? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself is the gift of God. If you are in Christ, you're ultimately headed for glory. And we share in the glory, we share in the position seated with Christ because what he did for us. Again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is able to condemn us? Again, Christ Jesus died, was raised, presently sits at the right hand of God. And the Lord himself is going to raise us up with him and seat us with him in the heavenly places in order that in the ages to come, this is eternal security, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. That's pretty good. So who can, or or can anyone, or can anything remove us the, from the position which God himself in his own mind, because God's outside of eternity, and he thinks in the, in the, in the present, Right? Can anything or anyone remove us from the position which God himself is going to seat us in with Christ in the heavenlies? And the answer is no. We're eternally secure, not because of us. We're eternally secure because of Christ and what God has done through Christ. And then there's more. Look what it says lastly here in the text. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who for, number four, who intercedes for us. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me start off and tell you what it doesn't mean. We'll go that way. We'll go to the negative. In light of all of the accusations and the judgment and the acquittal and those kind of terms, kind of courtroom-type terms, it would be quite easy to say that Christ's intercession here is Jesus pleading the benefits of his death on our behalf in the face of Satan or any, under, any other individual accusation. And many people see it that way. They, they see the courtroom scene here again <clears throat> played forward and <clears throat> Christ interceding for us in that light. Many preachers, many preachers, I continue with that courtroom analogy. Where God's the judge, the devil's the prosecutor, Christ's the defending counsel. 
going up before the judge answering every charge against the sinner, then God again and again pronouncing the verdict, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, justified by Christ, right? But I don't think that's really what's going on here. I don't know if you remember last time I used the kind of the courtroom analogy. I said in the Supreme Court of the universe, as it were, when the question goes out, who, right, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's really a summons by the judge of the earth, the universe. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And I told you there's going to be what? Absolute silence. Silence. Why? Because the issue has already been settled. The issue of our legal standing before God has already been determined. It's already a done deal. The verdict has already been rendered by the supreme judge of the universe, justified. How many times have I said this? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? You should get that tattooed on your forehead. Now, I'm not suggesting that, but it wouldn't be bad. I actually saw, I have a friend who is a police officer in, in North Carolina, and we were talking just a couple days ago about how crazy it is on the, on the street in North Carolina. His wife's kind of concerned about him because it's kind of crazy out there. And I said, well, you know what? And he just talked about guys keep coming back over and over again doing the same kind of stupid things. And I said, yeah, I actually saw, I think it was out of the U.K., I saw a picture of a guy who had a full face tattoo. You're going, well, this has nothing to do with this. I know, but that's okay. He had a full face tattoo, completely black, except on his forehead. Uh, um, gosh, I can't even think of what it says. Beast. It's okay, though, because on his Facebook page, he tried to hide his identity by wearing a mask <laughs> over his face like this. But you can still see beast on his forehead. The point of the story is most criminals are not very intelligent. And the point of the courtroom story here is the whole issue has already been taken care of. There's already been a declaration. Summons goes out in the Supreme Court of the universe, as it were, and there's utter silence. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The verdict rendered justified. Again, under the Old Testament Levitical system, in Hebrews 10, 11, the priest stands daily ministering offerings time after time, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Time after time, day after day, year after year, the high priest going into and out of the Holy of Holies, offering sacrifice after sacrifice, and the whole thing was repeated over and over and over again. But in Jesus Christ, guess what? There's no repetition. Christ has done it all once. Once for all time, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sit down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected all those who are sanctified. The whole matter of sin's judicial penalty has been paid for in Christ. Therefore, for the true believer, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. There, there can never be. Again, Lloyd-Jones is helpful. He says this, Imagine that according to the possibility, uh, every time a Christian falls into sin, the court has to meet in heaven. The devil brings his charge. Our Lord gets up and replies as the advocate. Can you see what would happen, he says. He says, I say with reference that nothing else could take place in heaven but that, because someone is sinning every moment. So heaven would be a place in which the whole matter of sin was continually being raised, which is ridiculous and absurd. Indeed, it seems to me a contradiction the whole teaching of the whole teaching of Scripture. There's no need for the Lord to continually get up and defend the believer because he's already done so. Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, Christ sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are made holy or sanctified. So again, you see, God sent the Christ, uh, God the flesh sends Christ into the world for the express purpose to seek and save the lost, to give himself as a sacrifice for many. He did so. He comes and he bears our sin. He bears our sin. He takes away our wrath and God accepts his sacrifice. We are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ because God raised him from the dead. And by, because God raised him from the dead, he accepted that sacrifice. We have peace with God. Right? Already done deal. Well, then what does that phrase mean? Christ who interceded for us. It means that since his resurrection and exaltation, Christ continues to secure for his people all the benefits of his death, so says the great theologian uh, Hodge. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he went there to obtain certain benefits for his 
people. He went to the Holy of Holies to obtain forgiveness of sin and all the blessings from God uh, for their daily living, to reconcile that relationship, at least on some level, uh, to provide somewhat of a cover. Uh, I wouldn't say access, but somewhat of a cover to God. But remember what I read, the way to the holy place at that point had not been discovered. But now, in Christ, the way to the holies, the holy of holies, has been discovered, and it's through Christ. Right? Under the Old Testament system, that way had not been disclosed, but now in Christ it has. Christ is the great high priest. And what Christ is presently doing for us, he's interceding for us. He's providing access to God. He, he's making sure that every person who believes upon him indeed is going to make it to heaven safe and secure, making sure that we have everything we need for life and godliness. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and might find help in our time of need. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the presence of the Lord Christ at the right hand of God is a guarantee that we can have mercy because it is indeed the throne of grace to us because he is there. We can go into the presence of God with boldness and assurance, not only to get mercy, but also grace to help our time of need because we get everything we need there, everything through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Christ makes intercession for his people. And if you look at the Old Testament, it's exactly what the Old Testament said, right? Uh, uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and divide the booty with the strong. He poured himself out to death. He numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. Uh, through the writer of the book of Hebrews, God says, Hebrews 7, verse 25. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, if we believe that Christ died upon the cross to save us from our sin, if we believe that Christ's sacrifice once and for all time secured our eternal salvation, if we believe that God so loved us that he sent Christ into the world to die for us, even while we were yet sinners then, how could we ever doubt that his love is not strong enough to keep us whom he has redeemed by the blood of his dear son. How could we not, how could we ever doubt his love and his strength that he's not able to keep us safe and secure all the way through to eternity? Because Jesus Christ, he is our perfect high priest. He offered that one time perfect sacrifice for our sin. Therefore, those who deny the eternal security of the believer deny the sufficiency of Christ's work. Those who deny the eternal security of the believer misunderstand the heart, the heart of God, and they misunderstand the gift of Christ. And those who deny the eternal security of the believer don't understand what happened upon Calvary's cross. They don't understand the meaning of the empty tomb, and they don't understand the gospel of grace. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And along with the Apostle Paul, we have to say, I'm convinced that nothing... No one shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand, seated, who intercedes for us. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the truth of the scripture. So thankful that if we dig down and just look and ask questions and study hard, we get not just superficial answers, but we get answers that are good, great, that encourage our heart and lift up our soul and cause us to, to walk away rejoicing because of your work on our behalf through your son. We thank you, Lord, for a great day of fellowship. Thank you for our time this morning, the time this evening, and we just praise you, our God. Help us to think deeply upon your truth, live according to it, and walk in that peace that you have promised to give us as your followers, as Christ said this morning in John chapter 14. Thank you for these dear folks. I pray your blessing upon them in Christ's name. Amen.